A friend asked me about Medea. So, he said, this is the Charpentier, Gustave Charpentier, the composer of Louise. Yes, I said, it is the Charpentier. It's Marc-Antoine Charpentier, that prodigiously gifted French Baroque composer whose music we're only recently beginning to appreciate properly. Hardly surprising, really, when you remember that Charpentier himself knew that he wasn't entirely appreciated by his contemporaries. He wrote a wonderful, ironic epitaph for himself. I was, he said, a musician considered a good one by good musicians and an ignorant one by the ignorant. But since those who scorned me were more numerous than those who praised me, music became a small honour and a heavy burden. What a sigh in that last line. And indeed, Charpentier had to wait a long time for his moment in the operatic sun in Paris. The composer Lully was deeply jealous of any potential rivals. And, of course, he had a complete artistic stranglehold over the opera, or the Académie Royale de Musique, to give it its proper name. And it wasn't until Lully died in 1687 that other composers got anything like a look-in. Charpentier's Medea, Medea, was given its first performance on the 4th of December, 1693, just seven years before the composer's death. He was already 50 years old. But he had acquired experience of writing for the stage before that. He'd provide music for plays at the Comédie Française, including for Molière and his La Malade Imaginaire. And he'd composed a couple of operas for private performance. The libretto for Medea was by the writer Philippe Cornet, whom Charpentier had collaborated with at the Comédie Française and who was the younger brother of the celebrated playwright Pierre Cornet. Our Cornet, Philippe, borrowed his story from the tragedies of Euripides and a little from the Roman Seneca for this opera, adding the character of Orontes, who loves Creuse, who is the king of Corinth's daughter. This, of course, is the woman that Jason is abandoning Medea for and who comes to a very nasty end in the dress that Medea gives her as a present. Cornet and Charpentier's opera closely follows the five-act model of the tragédie en musique that had been established by Lully, with each act including a divertissement with a ballet, chorus and a solo song, except in this particular opera there's not one in the final act. But, alas, Medea was not a success. It was taken off the stage after just ten performances at the Opera. Perhaps the audience were puzzled by Charpentier's very distinctive harmonic language, a legacy some have said of his apprenticeship in Italy. Or was there a cabal of the envious and ignorant, as Charpentier's friend Sebastian de Brossard suggested? De Brossard also says that the orchestra were the problem and that they were later fined for their incapacity or their malice. Well, no danger of that, I'm happy to say, here at the London Coliseum this evening. And we have a trio of guests joining us to explore this opera, Medea. Catherine Young, the mezzo-soprano, who's covering the role of Medea, will be sharing her ideas about Charpentier's heroine. And we're also joined by Christopher White, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. But our first guest is the scholar, writer and broadcaster, Professor Peggy Reynolds. She's a reader in English literature at Queen Mary College in the University of London. Will you please welcome Peggy Reynolds? I think I probably made a few with my size legs, Peggy, actually. Oh, right, yes, that's the answer. Peggy, 
What would be the appeal of this story of Medea to a Baroque composer? Well, funny enough, it's exactly what you said about people hanging from the chandeliers. Um, Baroque opera is very much about show. Um, you know, it, we're not like the 19th century opera, where things are about real people, real feelings, domestic settings, something like Traviata, for instance. Um, Baroque opera is very much about spectacle, it's about excitement, it's about lots of things going on. Um, and in this particular case, while there were many, many um, Medea operas, right from the very very beginning. Medea, because she's a witch, gives a brilliant opportunity for having lots of stage effects and things going on and magic things, and that was very appealing to composers of this period. I've said that the libretto was carved mostly out of Euripides' celebrated tragedy. Uh, is that, is that the case? Is Euripides basically the kind of building plank on which the whole edifice is built? Well, it's very interesting, because I actually went back and read Euripides um, in preparation for this. Um, and first of all, of course, um, opera comes out of... It, 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 opera, the very form, um, invented, as it were, um, in the late 16th century um, by a group of scholars called the Camerata in Florence. And what they were trying to do was to replicate what they thought was what ancient Greek drama was like. Um, so they, they were after that blend of music and poetry. And the appeal of having you know, choruses, of course in, in uh, ancient Greek drama quite often a chorus may be just one person, but somebody watching the action and commenting on it, well that's an operatic form that we uh, know very well. The duet dialogues, things like in this opera where Medea and Jason argue with each other, that's straight out of Euripides because he does exactly the same thing. Um, and then this whole sense of there being being um, at the, the moment when Medea talks to herself or talks to one person in the chorus about what she's going to do, what her plans are. So those soliloquies, too, are something that we now very much recognise as being part of the operatic form. Um, and mo most of it is Euripides. Um, of course, there are certain things, like uh, they've done very cleverly this thing of introducing Orontes, who's in engaged, who's betrothed to Creusa. Um, in Euripides, what actually happens is that Medea is sort of worrying about what's going to happen to her and where can she go and who will look after her, who will protect her. And Aegeus, who's the king of Athens, just appears out of nowhere on his way back from the oracle that he's been consulting, interestingly in Euripides, about the fact that he is childless. And it's almost as though it's this conversation about childlessness that gives Medea the idea for how she can really get back at Jason. Um, so I think they've thought a lot, very carefully, about Euripides there. Well, one thinks of French Baroque at this particular period. One also thinks of neoclassicism. One thinks in terms of the theatre of Corneille and Racine. One thinks of Versailles. Uh, there's clearly, presumably for Charpentier, also this idea of re-establishing a link with the classical that has furnished the ideas and style for the neoclassical. Without a doubt. And, of course, um, this was performed at the court of Louis XIV, um, so the whole question of, you know, kingship um, and uh, inheritance and power uh, are, are issues that are very much at stake here. Um, and going back to thinking about old stories is a way of saying we are the inheritors, we are the true inheritors of this ancient civilization, uh, which is the essence of civilization of everything that is good, everything that is valuable um, for the state and for ordinary people too. One of the constants of Baroque opera is the constant clash of the idea of personal happiness 
love, if you like, romance, with the notion of public duty, often gendered. I mean, women are representing passion, men representing duty, men seducing women. We'll come to that perhaps in our second conversation. But oh, goody. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do, you think, do you think this is actually the, 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 the great theme that rides all the way through? Um, this opera? Well, no, I'm not sure that that is right, Christopher. It seems to me that one reason why, you know, Medea is one of the very few opera heroines, whether from the early period or the later period, who does not die. You know, she 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 kills off everybody else, and she jolly get jolly well gets away with it. She goes off in her dragon chariot, pulled chariot, you know, into the ether. Um, and I think that, you know. The contravention of all order, of all, uh, you know, law. I mean, she breaks every law. She, she started off by killing her own little brother earlier on, you know. Um, she, 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 she contravenes family law. She contravenes state law. She gets all these pe other people from other countries onto her side. Um, I, I, I think the pleasure of Medea is that she's just so naughty. <laughs> but let me ask you another way. I mean, do you think within... Uh, both the libretto and the opera, there's an attempt to pin a contemporary moral onto this tale. I mean, is this piece about not only the pleasure of spectacle, excitement, and all the things that we know about a Baroque opera, but is it also to send a little warning across the audience's bows, so to speak? Well, except that Medea does, you know, get away with this, as I say. Um, but I, in a sense, I suppose, you know, her problem is, and in Euripides it's very clear that she is a barbarian. She's not part of the Greek state, the official Greek state. She's, so she's a barbarian, she's an outsider, and of course all this business about where she's been exiled from and to, um, and all the rest of it, the whole banishment, in one way it is a warning that if you let yourself go for that degree of excess, in the end, uh, you too will be outside everything. If you rebel against all law, then you will be outside the law. And it's also important that she's a sorceress. And there's a link here, of course, with Circe in some of the versions of the story. The idea that she and Jason uh, took time out to chill out on Circe's island on their way <laughs> after they got the fleece. I think there's also some suggestion in some legends that she's actually related to Circe. Uh, you know, because, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of interesting because remember that you know, she says at the beginning of the opera uh, that the gold dress that eventually will become the instrument of her revenge was a gift to her, from, you know, was, was emblematic of the fact that she was descended from the sun God. Um, so the whole business of being sun and life, but enchantment, um, is very important. Um, so that this, you know, it's the it's that magic element that is tremendously significant and very attractive. The idea of the sun god, of course, takes us to Apollo and takes us to Louis XIV. The sun king, we'll leave that for when we come out. Yes, and of course the prologue to Chaponte's opera was in praise of Louis XIV. Peggy, thank you. We'll talk again in a moment. We're joined now, ladies and gentlemen, by the mezzo-soprano Catherine Young, who's covering the role of Madeira in this production, and Christopher White, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you welcome Catherine Young and Christopher White? <laughs> Catherine, tell us what you're going to sing for us first. So I'm going to sing Medea's first aria. Um, she's just been banished by Creon, and she's singing a plea to Creusa to look after her two sons and um, to basically leave Jason alone, um, in a nutshell. <coughs> Good 
Catherine and Christopher, thank you both very much. You come and join us, Catherine. Um, ladies and gentlemen, you might notice up here on the screen, you can see as a kind of uh, taster uh, images from the production you're going to see later uh, the, this evening. Catherine, um, what makes this Medea interesting for you? Um, this Medea, I, I find she, she is such a strong woman. She has created all of this. She's, she's left her homeland. She's done everything for Jason. And yet she has this huge Achilles heel, which is her love for Jason, which leaves her completely vulnerable to what, to what happens at the beginning of this opera. And she doesn't, she doesn't have a clear picture of what to do. It's not within her, her moral compass, if she has one, which is <laughs> <laughs> debatable, but I think she a does. Different it's just kind a very, of moral a compass. very different <laughs> kind of moral of us, compass. Yes. But it's a very strong sense of what is right in her head. And... Um, I think that's what makes her so fascinating. She's so powerful and so strong, and yet completely flawed by this man. Um, do, you, do you see her as a victim, or is, is her journey rather more complex than that? I, th I think it's more complex than that. She, she is victimised, I think, by most of the characters, well, by, by the men, certainly in this opera, apart from Orontes. And, um, but at no point does she really allow that to happen. She's sort of put in this position, which she's obviously very uncomfortable with, and, and then deals with later she's but she subverts it all the time people are trying to make make her act a certain way trying to get her to do something and she she won't have it every scene that she has with the character she flips by the end of the scene to be the one in control and the one with power even when she's in a in seemingly a position where she she doesn't have any the, the shocking thing um, clearly for the ancient greeks uh, four centuries for the Christian era, uh, for us now, and indeed for the Baroque audience, was the fact this woman murders her own two children. Yes. And how does one, how is a, thinking about this, how do you encompass that idea? Well, obviously, it's <laughs> you need to go to quite a dark place. Um, but but um, when I come back to, to Medea's strong moral code, she, she is so clear in her thoughts that Jason needs to be punished extremely harshly for what he's done to her. And the only thing that can get him back enough is to deny him of his children. Um, and also, I, I do think it comes into it at the end, she doesn't want her children, she loves them an awful lot, she doesn't want them to be the sons of such a traitor. She, she just thinks it's abhorrent. I always think it's significant that they're sons. Oh, gosh. 
Oh dear. <laughs> That's the friendly English National Opera Mouse. It's, co it's come to join you and hear the talk. It's, it's very peaceful. It'll be all right. We've had it before. And, and what I think is interesting is that they are sons, not daughters, or not one son, what daughter. No. Which, which, which we, might, we, might, we might come back mm. to. How demanding vocally is this part? I mean, you're on stage an awful lot. Yes, yes. And I, I think back-to-back, -back, if you sung the role in its entirety with nobody else, it's about a two-hour sing. Um, and a lot of that is recitative, which is, uh, you know, it's quite, it is very demanding. And also, as, as she goes on, it gets more demanding. So by the end, when she's really at her peak, it, it's, quite, it's quite a powerful point of the voice. And it, and it, it really it could be very tiring. It's very important to pace, pace it well throughout the rehearsal process and on stage. I mean, we, we, we know perfectly well the idea of a mezzo-soprano is rather a modern idea, mm. and this would not have occurred to Charpentier. I mean, there no. were voices. Mm. D does it sit naturally within what we now describe as the mezzo-soprano range? Oh, I think so, and I, th I think that's the thing. The exciting points of the voice in a mezzo um, are where the exciting parts of this role will really come out very strongly. I think if it was sung by a soprano... Um, it, would, it could be sung very well by a soprano, but it, it might not have the bleed at the, at the most intense moments where you need it. Um. The, the aria you've just sung, Chris, has that extraordinary sense of, of pathos mm. attached to it, mm. uh, plus a sort of rather toughness too. I mean, it's got, it's got both these things. And, yeah. and indeed, is, that, is there a kind of very distinctive vocal style that Charpentier devises from the day. There is. There, there is this very lyrical, all the way through she has gorgeous lyrical moments, and then there'll be sort of more spoken, aggressive um, parts, and it's very much her being the mother versus being the monster, and, and, and being submissive and then being in power. You can, you can very much see that from his writing, and it's, it's very interesting to sing. Catherine, thank you. You're going to sing Chris again in a moment, but not before we've had a chance to talk to Christopher. Christopher, um, did you know this work before you settled down to be part of the team to get it on stage? Absolutely not, no. Um, I wasn't familiar with the work or the style, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of us here have been on a big learning curve uh, musically. I certainly have. Um, so it's been great to have Christian's really expert guidance because the score gives you very little. Um, so, no, it was, a, it was a, a literally closed book to me when I first opened it. When you did open the score, what surprised you? Um, I think what surprised me most was how, um, how varied the music is, even though it looks on the page like a series of um, relatively conventional types of music. It's absolutely not that at all. And what's most fascinating about it, and this takes a, a bit of time to, to work out, is the fluctuation between recitative quasi-recitative, so-called air de corps, and full-blown aria. Um, and uh, there are usually, well, I say usually, in the Baroque opera with which I'm familiar, there are far more signposts of here now is an aria, here now is some recitative. In uh, the Charpentier, thrillingly, there's, so, there's, there's none of that. There really isn't. And so it leaves it open for um, so much uh, interpretation and character interpretation and development. And you, you, n you never know, actually, it takes a long time to work out where you are, sort of what's around the next corner. Um, and and what what mode are we going into now? You know, are we are we having a discussion? Are we having a heightened discussion? Are we having um, something quite false, which is a lot of Creosa's role, which we might talk about later, um, or is or is this is this genuine arioso singing? So it's it's just been fascinating. There are two questions provoked by that. 
Well, the first one is this. I mean, should one try to think about it in, in a 19th century way as a through composed opera uh, of, of, of a very early kind? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it, it, if you look at what Wagner was trying to do in his relationship with the Greek myths in, in through composed opera and this, obviously, uh, Medea working directly with Euripides, I think, yes, that's absolutely right. Because, I mean, I've, I've just read the Euripides in English as well. I'd never studied classics or anything, so I wasn't aware that you have singing, chanting, and speaking. Um, at least that's the way it's rendered into the English. Um, and that's a brilliant uh, parallel, really, for what you have here. So, um, so yes, I think uh, you, you could think of it in that sense as being through, through composed. Th those three divisions that, that, that you established as, as the vocal stuff, mm. uh, does Charpentier play games with them, thus offering what we might think as be uh, material that would appropriately be set as an aria uh, in recitative, for example. I mean, are we constantly having to keep our ears pretty sharp for what's going on? Absolutely. And so are the players, because um, there's a, a great byplay between the conductor, who also plays one of the harpsichord parts, and then the continuo, um, uh, the rest of the accompanying instruments uh, uh, really bounce back and forward. What's interesting is the role of Creusa, really, because what was brought out from both Christian and Sir David Mubica, who has been directing, um, is that she, uh, nothing she says is true, as it were, in inverted commas, until right at the end when she's confronting Medea personally after the death of her father. So you hear a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff where she's, she's performing, she's singing, and Charpentier and, by extension, Creusa are very aware of the seductive power of the voice. Um, you hear very little uh, melismatic writing, that is one syllable for many notes. But you do hear the most of it from Creusa, and that's this sense of deception or this sense of flattery or this sense of something not being quite real. Um, uh, but that's exploded at the end in a fantastic uh, scene between her and Medea, just before the end. G going back to the score, in terms of the orchestral players, um, are there kind of, as it were, gaps that, that, that Charpentier would have expected his band at the opera to have known what to do? In other words, a, a whole range of instructions that we may not have a clear idea about where you have to make educated, informed guesses about what the individual instruments are doing. Well, yes, I mean, in terms of my personal involvement with this piece, it's all been educated guesswork, actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, I mean, y you have an awful lot of recitative-style writing, which is one voice, one bass line, and some numbers, if you're lucky, um, underneath. And uh, it is for the um, continuo, mainly, to make sense of that. By the continuo, I mean a much bigger group than just cello and harpsichord. In this case, it is a, a gamba, a bass violin, two harpsichords, and two theorbos. Um, and uh, Christian has been working also in a very improvisatory style, really, to, to see how each line practically can be best expressed with a combination of those six instruments, or very rarely all of them. Um, so just from the continuo perspective, there's, there's that. Um, and then there's this vexed question of inegalité, which is this idea that you don't play uh, lines of quavers equally, neither, neither do you as it were, dot them, but it's this in-betweens, almost not quite, and uh, um, it can only be felt, really. Um, I, I lost count of the numbers of times that Christian has said to me, just feel it, just feel it, and uh, <laughs> um, eventually, eventually one does, actually. And, um, Is that something you could show us on the piano? Ooh. I'm sorry, putting you on the spot, but for those of us who... Uh, yeah, okay, let's, let's think about this. Um, beginning of Act 5, maybe, a little... Okay, so it's not this. But it's also not this.
it's something like this. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I'm not particularly confident. Um, it's to do with it's to do with the baroque bow. It's to do with the gesture, um, and um, it's it's a, it's an inexact and beautiful science. And I'm but not really the one to. Wonderful show you. to watch your body language because when you did it the third time, yes. it was almost as if you were about to dance. And I wonder whether it's that kind of sense of the sprung rhythm through the absolutely, whole body absolutely, that we associate yeah. with Absolutely dance. right. Yes. And this idea of tripping forward, constantly tripping forward, um, with the players and the singers, all of the singers, principals, covers, e chorus. Um, this idea of, of, of not of not waiting a bar line uh, as as one often would, um, but always just this sense of forward motion. It's it's very very um, subtle indeed and difficult to achieve. Beyond the the continuer group in the pit, what else have we got? Uh, we have uh, a string section. Uh, we have uh, three recorders, and we have uh, trumpets and drums where necessary. Oh, and a, a woodwind section as well. So I mean the the um, uh, bare bones of of of, of a 18th 19th century orchestra are very much there, and quite a large orchestra too. Um, yes, I suppose it's about 40 piece, but don't quote me. Um, they're, uh, they're not all. I mean, also like the continuo, they're, they're used for very specific purposes. Now, what I obviously can't demonstrate particularly clearly is the aria that we just sang earlier. Uh, it's this interplay between the broader sweep of the of the string sound and then the more intimate um, recorders, uh, and this schizophrenic, if you want to call it that, or this, this uh, very bipolar nature of, of Medea whenever she sings, um, in that particular aria is brought out best by the, the instrumentation. We know f from, 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 from the biographies that most of the music that Charpentier wrote, and indeed much that we, we know before this opera, uh, was written for the human voice. I mean, the pieces he wrote for, for Mademoiselle Guise, his great patron. Does that mean that you think he writes very carefully for the voice? And you've talked about Kreuzer. I mean, what about other characters? Is the vocal writing distinctly related to the idea of character? I think it's related very much to the idea of, of, of action and what's going on, actually. I think Kreuzer is, to my mind, the character with the most distinctive vocal profile. Um, I read, a one, no, I didn't, I heard from Christian a wonderful quote that the French uh, sing their plays and speak their operas. So it's this idea of... of Declamation. We were talking before before the session. Um, I think that's paramount. Mm. So I mean, you get Creon. It's wonderful sense that Brindley Sherratt achieves of of of, of uh, impotent bluster. Um, that's very much written into the vocal part. Uh, and then the final scene, the very final scene between Medea and 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 Jason. This uh, Jason um, ends his entire role on what's essentially a, a breaking down, a sob. Um, a great gods you stand by while these crimes are committed is, 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 is the English version and, and, and the way Geoffrey Francis really breaks down is there's scope for that kind of, kind of uh, work from Charpentier so yes, I mean he knows exactly what he's doing Christopher, we should hear some more what are you and Catherine going to do next? Uh, we have um, Medea's great Act 5 aria this is when she has decided uh, on the course of action she's going to take she's going to murder her own children and we have this fantastic um, uh, well, again, bipolarity, which comes absolutely to the fore here in the music, in the voice, and everything. Um, and uh, uh, she she can hardly believe herself what she's doing, but she knows in her mind that it, that is the only course that she can take. And there is the most wonderful chord I just have to play. Um, the last line, how sweet when I taste his pain. That, on the word sweet, which I think is absolutely a wonderful marriage of 
the emotion and the plot and the music and the voice. So it's, uh, that's a wonderful moment to listen out for. So much pain, so much Catherine, stay with us. Catherine and uh, Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Very much. Um, Peggy, what is it perhaps that makes Medea 
so threatening to everybody around. In a sense, he touched upon it, but here we are in the 21st century, a long time away from Euripides, a long time away from Japondi. What continually makes her threatening? Well, in a way, I think uh, Christopher and Cathy have really brought this out, that, and the music, because uh, really listening to that, that split, um, mm. you know, and that particular aria, it's so perfect, isn't it? Mm. Because, you know, you really do get the, oh, I do love them, but I'm jolly going to do it anyhow, you know. It's, it's quite remarkable that it's, you know, oh, it it going back and forth like that. Yeah. And I think that's the problem. And actually, in this production, not to spoil it for those of you who are still going in there, the fact that Medea goes in for what we would now call self-harm, I think it was absolutely perfect because it is somebody who's very torn within herself. And that psychological characterization that is brought out in this particular production, but is definitely there even in the music, as Chris was saying earlier, you know, is something that I think is one reason that it's very anxiety. I mean, you know, I was getting huge chills <laughs> just listening to that all over again. Fantastic. Is it also, I was going to say the appeal of the irrational, but maybe I really mean the unreason. Well, y y yes, exactly. That we That's live in a it. world where, where we're but supposed to be reasonable, but we, here is a wonderful woman who is totally unreasonable. Yes, and you know what has... Uh, another thing that I think is... I, I know that maybe we're coming on to this, but the way that this is set in a time of war and... Sudden, and I know that, you know, technically speaking, within the plot line, it's Medea's fault that this war has come about um, because of the crimes that she's committed before she's arrived, even arrived on stage. But it suddenly occurred to me very powerfully, thinking about this opera, that the true victims of war are always children. You know, they mm. are the ones mm. oh, and who women really too. suffer. Well, oh. but, but, but it's children. It's like, you know, it's, it's children and, dare I say, animals, <laughs> in a way. Because, you know, they are not the ones. They're not the adults. They're not the people who have chosen to go and do this thing. And even women, you know, acquiesce in it. Um, and, and so suddenly, you know, and, and to see Jason with, you know, the child in his pyjamas, oh, you know, just horrendous. Uh, a production that also sets uh, this opera in the 1940s in time of war reminds us, because all the men in uniform are in uniform yeah. and the women not, the extraordinary gap between genders. Yes, except that I love the fact that Medea, at the beginning, is, you know, wearing her little black suit. So she's trying to conform. Mm -hmm. She's trying to fit herself mm -hmm. into that box. And therefore, of course, you know, when she strips it all off, that's absolutely right too. Um, I, no, I, I, I thought that conceit worked very, very well because um, the sense that this very private story has actually exploded into the public world worked fantastically well. And, and a sense that the whole of this world is on the edge of complete disaster. Oh, and everything is so corrupt. And I, I was so intrigued by what you were saying, Christopher, about Creusa's music because here in this production, the suggestion that something untoward is going on between Creusa and her father is so clever because it does mean that her, you know, she is a lie. She is always performing that lie and therefore that she has the long singing strands, whereas, mm. of course, Medea's feelings are true, uh, mm. albeit... Explosive. Oh, she's very honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it is. It's. It's. Uh, I think it's very frightening, and maybe 
you know, maybe that old thing of catharsis is absolutely right to confront these horrendous actions, um, which are not just only Medea's, but everybody else's as well. And in a way, even though she's the one who commits this terrible crime, she is the only one who's been really honest, yeah. as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a question that we were sort of circling around before, but the fact that uh, it's two boys that Medea oh, murders... Yes not a girl and a boy or two girls, is important. Absolutely, it has to be two boys, because the reason why, whether we're talking Euripides or Charpentier or anybody, the reason why Medea chooses to kill the boys is because he will die childless. And that means his line is not continued, and, it's not, and it has to be boys. Um, so that that is, you know, he will not live beyond his own life. That is why it's, mm. it, is, it has to be the right revenge. Ladies and gentlemen, there's an opportunity for you to ask questions now of all of us here. Um, <coughs> there is the celebrated roving microphone about to rove. If you'd like to ask a question, do please put up your hand, catch my eye, and I will make certain. Yes, we've got a question in the fourth row on the left. Well, our left, your right. Um, sorry, it's a question about the, um, really the social, when the play was put on, how it would be taken. Um, I was told at school that the the Euripides original was less popular than it might have been, both because it showed a strong woman, but also because it showed the rulers as being weak, foolish, and not that moral men. I don't know what Charpentier does with it, but surely that would have gone down really badly with Louis XIV, especially, <laughs> especially killing the heirs to the throne when yeah. he had problems. Wasn't yes. it rather a bold plot to choose. It, it probably was. As far as Euripides is concerned, there's some debate about this because, of course, uh, Medea came third in the contest when it was presented in 431. Um, but Sophocles came second, <laughs> you know, and number one was Aeschylus's son with one of Aeschylus's plays. So, you know, we, we, they had a really top line-up. So we can't really tell how popular or unpopular it was at that point. Um, Charpentier, I think you're absolutely right, but, but we do know that Louis XIV, his brother and his son, so, you know, two of his heirs, actually attended this opera quite, uh, quite often, more than once. Um, so I take your point about, you know, it being, well looking forward to what was happen going to happen in France a hundred years later. Um, so, I, 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 But it is interesting, maybe that's the reason why it didn't last very long and was not often... It was revived in Lille, wasn't it, yes. subsequently, but not very often. No, it wasn't revived in Lille because the sets burnt. <laughs> there were plans to, but unfortunately, yeah. as often happens, the sets, as they say in Glasgow, went on fire. Well, it was all that fire, fire and brimstone that Medea was up to, wasn't it? <laughs> but, but I wonder, Peggy, I mean, I, we, I asked, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I wonder if it isn't the Sun connection, the Apollo connection, that really allowed Louis to identify uniquely, perhaps, with Medea. With Medea, rather than... Here is another, yes. another child of the Sun. Yes, true. And, and maybe... Even her negative power is a kind of, you know, it's a showing um, complement to the king that he, once he decides to exercise his power, it will be complete. And maybe, you know, his, his, the, so the, even the revenge thing is, works. Because if you, if you betray him, then all hell will break loose. Hmm? Another question. Do we have another question? Yes. Over there, number one, and then we'll come to you, number two. So we're going to do it the other way around. So number one here, yep. and then number two sitting on the steps. I've got, I've got the micro. 
I'm sorry if this is whoopsie, I'm sorry if this is a very technical question. What's the figuring for the chord on the word sweet no. in the continuum? <laughs> <laughs> You're obviously going home to practice later. <laughs> says nine seven but um, there's a three and a five implied as well so all the even numbers it's, it's amazingly modern mm. sounding I mean it could be a jazz piece couldn't it yeah. well let's take us back to something we've not really talked about which which is and really because none of us can do any more than speculate. There is a view that it was indeed the fact that Charpentier had trained in Italy and brought back what were thought to be um, distinctly Italian harmonic mm. traits, incorporates them in his music elsewhere, and maybe, well, more mildly than usual in this opera, that caused it to be uh, unpopular. So maybe it is the distinctive harmonic world that he creates, like that extraordinary chord, that accounts for the only ten performances, or indeed the fact that musicians find it very difficult to adjust to play that kind of music. Well, we're, just, we're in the realm of musicological <laughs> scholarship and uh, expertise. We have a question at the, at the back, and the, on the steps. I'm interested in the problems, which I, th I think ENO has all the time, I suspect, of the translation and how that makes the singing different than the stresses. Is this a problem, or are, do you just have good translation? Claire, I think that's a question for you. Sorry, I didn't catch the it's, last... It's about this, this question, if you're going to sing in English, yeah. uh, matching, as it were, French mm. um, in the original to an English translation mm. and, and, the, and, the, and the note values and the word values. Yes, well, I, I think we're, we're blessed with this translation by Chris Cowell. Absolutely. It really is. It's a phenomenal translation, and it's beautiful in its own right. It really, really is the most beautiful translation I've done. And when you were singing the second aria just then, I noticed what the, a little bit of the translation was something about my fond... I mustn't have my fond... My fond, fond nature. Yeah. And I thought, how Death clever that life. is, because it's both fond in the modern sense of liking something, but fond as in the old-fashioned sense of foolish. Very clever. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It, and it's littered with, with things yes. like that. It, it is just a stunning translation. Um, and it is hard to sing in English. I, I, it, it is... Singers do find it quite technically difficult singing in English um, but but for this because it's set so well it, it just it isn't as difficult as normal and um, there are a lot of words though I will say <laughs> a, lot, a lot of words to learn but, um, no but I did look at it in pre preparing the role I did look at it primarily in French and then came to the English and I have to say that um, that's that's something I do for everything that I do at ENO, I always look at the original um, original first, and then look at the English because it helps you technically. But um, but with this, it, it wasn't it wasn't so far from the French really. It was it, it's such a brilliant translation. I, I do hope you all enjoy it. We've time, I think, for just one more question. Who would like to have the last question in the front row? The microphone is on its way. This is just another. Um, quick question really about technical aspect is this being performed at modern concert pitch or slightly lower in pitch of 16th yes it's being yes, performed at concert pitch right does that make it more difficult for, for singers yeah. I presume it does <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes well it depends on your role I suppose <laughs> but yes yes it, it, oh well it doesn't make it more difficult it just makes it you know slightly different but also I think more exciting that certainly yeah. the bit we just sang it is de yeah. definitely in a point of in my voice, which which is 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 very crucial to the emotion, I think, of, of the role. I will say that some sections have been transposed, mm. 
Um, that's completely normal um, because, as you were saying earlier, Christopher, you know, people didn't think in terms of mezzo-soprano, tenor, baritone, they just thought of voices that they wanted to express something. So um, I don't think that's a big trade secret to, to, to give away, but uh, it's, it's perfectly normal in this kind of music. I think you're going to be convinced by the end of this evening you've had a, an extraordinary experience. And I'm sure you will, and I hope you do too. Some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being wonderfully patient and attentive as we've done. But above all, our thank yous to our guests, Peggy Reynolds, Catherine Young, and Christopher White. Thank you all very much.